0: North Shore Church Audio Podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you have your Bible, open up to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two. We're gonna get there in just a moment. We're in our series, The Real Jesus, here this morning. Several years ago, I got a call here at the church. There was a lady in town, she wasn't a part of our church, just in the community, and and it sounded kind of urgent, and she was just looking for somebody to talk to. And so, and so she, uh, she called up, and she said, hey, you know, Pastor, I, I'm just, I, I have something going on. I, I was wondering if you and I could talk. And so I made some arrangements. She came in, and she sat down, and, and we talked. And she just was looking for advice, somebody she could trust. And so she called a pastor, and she tells me about an email conversation That she had with a lady. And this lady emailed her out of the blue. And she had claimed to be a lottery winner. And she had won over a hundred million dollars in the lottery. And she was just looking to pay it forward. To bless somebody else. And and so she was really just looking for 20 random strangers. That she could give a million dollars a piece to. And so this lady that came in, she was one of them that was chosen. And she had been chosen to to receive a million dollars free and clear clear from this lottery winner. And she was looking for advice. What do I need to do to move forward? Um, um, How can I protect this money? What what do I have to do? Just just help me um, make the right decisions. And um, as she came in, there was just real joy in her life just real joy in her face. There was a genuine hope that she was bringing with her, and, and she was telling me about how this was going to be a blessing to her and her family, how she was going to be able to pay off medical bills and homes, and there was just so much hope inside of her. Now, obviously, when I, when I heard this, maybe not obviously, but at least to me, when, when I heard this, when she was saying this, my first thought was, it's a scam, right? It, it, it's a scam, and so I immediately begin to ask her some questions. Like, okay, let me just first ask: Have you given her any of your information, social security number, driver's license, anything like that? Have you given her any of this information? No, no, I haven't done that. Good. Okay, let's don't. Um, have you given any money? Like, like, did you do a money order, or had, did you have to like give a hundred dollars for like processing fees or anything like that? No, I haven't had to do that yet. Okay, don't, don't. Let's 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 process this and let's take some steps and and make sure we get this done right and. My thought was that as I begin to realize that this was probably a scam, I figured my emotional response was going to be to sort of laugh inside. Oh, how naive, you know, I mean, be smart and stuff like that. But but it really wasn't. My heart in that moment was was very, very heavy because in her, there was so much hope. There was so much hope and there was so much life inside of her, so much excitement inside of her. And, And man, my heart was just breaking for it. And when we... Got online, and we did a little bit of research, Googled some things, and found out that this was a scam, and, and don't participate in it, and steer, steer clear, and all that stuff. It was just, it was sad how just the air and the energy was just sucked out of the room, and and I made a statement to her that I've said before, you've said before, we've all heard before, and and, and so I said this. I said, listen, most of the time, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? If it sounds too good to be true. It probably is. None of us like to be tricked. We don't like to be scammed. We don't like to be taken. And so we have learned in cases like this, when we get these random emails or texts, to proceed with caution, right? When the Nigerian prince emails you out of the blue and says he has $5 million worth of gold that he needs to get out of the country, and he's going to split it in half with you, the only thing you have to do is buy him a plane ticket, it's probably a good idea to be a little skeptical, yes? My guess is if he has $5 million worth of gold, he could probably find somebody else instead of a random stranger to purchase a $1,000 plane ticket, okay? But, but there's a moment in this where we think, where we hope, we sort of daydream or fantasize like, what if this is real? Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, I'd make that trade, a $1,000 plane ticket for $2.5 million worth of gold any day of the week. And then we spend like 30 seconds sort of fantasizing about how we would quit our job, right? Or what we would say to our boss as we're walking out, right? Some of you are like, no, my boss is here. I love my job. I don't know what you're talking about. But we sort of like, man, we, we, we spend a couple of seconds thinking, wouldn't that be nice if it was real? But we know if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Boy, you wouldn't believe how lucky I am. Some would say blessed. Because over the last couple of months, I've won like five trips to Hawaii. I have. I, I keep getting these text messages, and they're like 882 numbers or something like that. They're not real numbers. But, but congratulations, Chris. You've won an all-expense paid trip to Hawaii. And that includes travel and airfare and all this stuff. And I've won five of them over the last couple of months. It's amazing, Right? boy, God is shining on me. I've also won a trip to London. I've also won a couple of cruises to the Caribbean. All of these things, I just keep winning and winning and winning and it's amazing and and it's all expense paid, But, but we know if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And maybe these text messages that are declaring me the winner of these vacations, maybe it's true. Maybe it's totally legit. Maybe they are real vacations and I'm just so lucky I keep winning and keep winning. Maybe... I should be on a beach somewhere right now instead of here talking to you. But because it sounds too good to be true, my default is to reject it as a scam and to not think of it again until I can use it as a sermon illustration, right? Because it just sounds too good to be true. And this, I believe, lies at the heart of the tension that we find in the gospel. Think about this. If we think about the heart of the gospel, it sounds too good to be true. Right, We were condemned to die. Sin says that we all must pay for the sin in our life. The only response to sin is judgment and death. And so when we were condemned to die, Jesus came and he stood in our place and he died so we didn't have to. Sounds too good to be true. We stand condemned. Jesus stands in front of us. It sounds too good to be true. Jesus gave us his righteousness, his rightness, and took our sin. He took our badness. It was, this, it was this totally lopsided trade, and it sounds too good to be true. Jesus died so that we could have access to the kingdom of God, so that we could have eternal life, that we could live forever and ever in paradise, and it cost us absolutely nothing. It sounds like a ridiculous text message that you get from some random number that you think is a scam. It sounds too good to be true. So when we think about the gospel, we often think, what's the catch? We, we know, uh, look, I'm not stupid. I know that nothing in life is free. Facebook memes tell me this all the time, but you don't get anything for free. It always has a cost. And so, and so because I know this, I, I have to, I have to believe that there's a catch somewhere because the gospel at its core sounds too good to be true. And because it sounds too good to be true, we often fall into one of two default modes. Number one, we ignore it. As as we would a silly text saying we want a vacation to Hawaii, or number two, we attempt to add a price to it so, so that we, a price that we think is somewhat reasonable. We, we, we attempt to, to say that it costs, the gospel costs us something, that, that salvation costs up something because if it costs us nothing, well, then it's too good to be true and we don't believe it. We're in a series that we're calling The Real Jesus, and what our goal is over this series is to strip away some of the misconceptions of Jesus and the misconceptions of the gospel and get to the real heart of it, to identify who Jesus really is. And my hope and my goal this morning is to um, put us in a position where we understand who Jesus is and what he's done in a way that would encourage us to live for him with a massive amount of joy. And a massive amount of freedom because I think so many of us, we put so much pressure on us in serving Jesus and worshiping Jesus and following Jesus that we forget that he has done it all. We forget that the real message of the gospel is, in fact, too good to be true. And so we're going to hope to remind us of that this morning. So that's what we're going to do in the remainder of our time. We're going to wrestle through this tension that Jesus is, in fact, too good to be true. Or we think he's too good to be true. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. This is the Christmas verse. Um, It's one that we really only read in December, and, and I know it's not, but just... Hey, it's Christmas in October, right? So we're just gonna go, go with this one. This is what it says, Luke chapter two, verse eight. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And, and this is the night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So that's the night. There were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. And scripture says they were afraid. You can believe that they were afraid. They were in the, in the fields just tending their sheep, um, a normal night, just like any other night. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, an angel appears and the radiance of God's glory surrounded him. It, it's not an angel appearing in in the form of man or just like sneaking up on them you know in the middle of the night and say hey guys what's your name oh great I'm an angel just want you to know something this angel appeared in the sky poof, all the the glory all the you know the the sparkles and the the glitter and and everything else that that the angels have in the halos and all that I don't know if he really had a halo but but in all of his glory right in all of his glory and he's standing there and they were freaking out what's going on this is crazy aliens you know we're all dead what, whatever i don't know what they were thinking but they were freaking out verse 10 but the angel reassured them don't be afraid he said i bring you good news everybody say good news said, I bring you good news that will bring you great joy to all people. Not just you here on the hillside of Bethlehem, but all people of all time. Even people that are going to come 2,000 years ago that live in Hastings, Nebraska, that go to North Shore Church. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so the angel is saying, I bring you good news. I bring you great news. I bring you news that is going to sound, when you hear it, too good to be true. I bring you news that is so good that at first hearing, you're going to think it's a scam. I bring you news that is so good, that is so lopsided, that is so beneficial to you, that you are going to be skeptical at first, and that's okay. And that in part is why I believe we have the Old Testament prophets that are prophesying Jesus and that, that are giving all of these indicators and these foreshadows of Jesus that, that are, are these forerunners of knowing who the Messiah is when he shows up because God knew that the message, that the news was so good that if we didn't have some sort of proof, some sort of guarantee in it that we would be skeptical and we would reject it as being too good because we know that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And there are things that are going to happen to prove that this news that sounds too good to be true, which actually is as good as it sounds, but there are going to be things that are going to prove that it's true. First of which, the angel says, essentially, you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. And he says, go check it out. Go check it out. You're going to find the baby. He's going to be laying in a little food trough with like, cows and sheep and stuff like that. That's him. Go, go see him. Go see him. And every page after that of the gospel declares that the good news that is Jesus, that that sounds too good to be true, actually is as true as it sounds. And we we read stories of Jesus, and we read how he fed the hungry. That's good news. We read how he casts out demons. That's good news. We read how Jesus speaks a word to a man who couldn't walk and and he gets up and he jumps off his mat that his friends were carrying him, rolls it up and runs home. That's good news. We, we, we read stories about Jesus coming to his friend's grave after he'd been dead for several days and he speak to the dead man and said, hey, um, um, you know, I just want all these people to know, or he prays to God that he prays to God and says, you know, I, I know you, you know me. Um, I don't even have to pray this prayer, but I'm praying this prayer right now so that everybody knows that you and I are, are one and and you sent me. So um, Lazarus, get up and, and come out of that grave and everybody's freaking out as, as they roll the stone away and this dead man comes hopping out of the grave and Jesus is like, Okay, take those wraps, take those wrappings off because he'll die again. And, and, and we see that Jesus, um, with words, is able to challenge and destroy death and bring a dead man back to life. And that's really good news, right? It's good news that our God is stronger than death. Yes, that's good news. It's good news um, to hear things like this. It, it's good news when, when Jesus heals the blind. It's good news when he opposes kingdoms. When Jesus died on the cross, that's good news. When Jesus rose again from the dead, it's good news. Jesus made a way so that you and I could be reconciled to God. That's good news. And all of it sounds a little hard to believe. All of it sounds like, you know, yeah, it's good news, but it may just be too good to be true. And because we are so convinced that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, we're very dismissive of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. we, We look at Jesus with sort of dismissive gratification, kind of like what we would respond to the news of somebody bringing donuts to the office, right? We're Like, hey, that's awesome. That's great. Good. You know, doesn't really affect me but but hey you know that's good that makes my day a little bit better and we look at Jesus as hey thank you Jesus for making my Sunday a little bit better and uh, and we don't really understand the gravity of the good news that is involved in it and and I and I know what's happening here I I know that there's a lot of you that are believers you've had a relationship with Jesus for a long time and you're thinking well Pastor Chris why are you teaching this basic, basic gospel message, a salvation message, it's because oftentimes we forget the magnitude of the good news of Jesus. And if we can't remember, if, if we can't hold on tightly and aggressively to the message of the central core gospel of Jesus Christ, then we are going to radically fail in our responsibility to take the good news to those who don't know it. So we have to constantly come back and be reminded of the magnitude of the good news that is Jesus. And so oftentimes we think, yeah, sure, Jesus is good news, great. But it can't be that good. Look at all the bad in the world. I want you to know today, it can be that good, and it is that good. In fact, the more you dig into who Jesus is and what he's done, the better and better that news becomes. It just just begins to to multiply in its power, to multiply in its goodness. When you understand who Jesus really is, look at this. In John chapter 19, this is the end of his life. We looked at Luke chapter 2, the beginning. This is um, uh, John chapter 19, the end of his life here on earth. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's dying at the hands of the Roman soldiers who have tortured him with whips, who have tortured him with thorns, who have put bags over his head, slapped him across the face, and said, oh, you're some great prophet? Well, then prophesy to me. Tell me who it was that just slapped you. Ha ha ha. Laughing. Bowing down before him in fake, mock, idolatrous worship. Spitting on his face and ripping out his beard. This is after Jesus has endured all of that. After Jesus has been stripped naked and had metal spikes driven into his hands and his feet as he's hanging there on a cross, suffocating to death. You see, on a cross, the cross isn't intended to kill you through blood loss. It's intended to kill you through a slow, painful process of suffocation. Because what happens on the cross is you're hanging there and your body falls down limp, you can't breathe out. You can't get rid of any of the carbon dioxide that builds up in your lungs. And so, what you have to do is you have to, with excruciating pain, pull yourself up on your, the ri- on your wrists and, and your feet, the nails that have dr- driven through you. And then you have to breathe out real quick, and then take it, and then you breathe in. But you begin to choke, you begin to suffocate because you can't breathe out. And so, it was intended to be a slow, painful death by suffocation. This is where Jesus is at right now. By the way, um, this was Jesus' choice, okay? It's so important, and I say this every time because I think it bears uh, um, weight every single time, that this was Jesus' choice to go to the cross. And this makes the good news so much greater. To know that Jesus wasn't forcefully murdered by an angry mob that he just couldn't do anything about. And, and, and I love, Scripture tells us, Scripture makes sure that we know that Jesus went of his own accord, that with one word, he could have said one word, and thousands of angels would have swooped in, wiped out the entire Roman legion there, and scooped Jesus up off the cross and healed him immediately. In fact, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, when... Hundreds of Roman soldiers came to arrest one man, Jesus. And they're like, Jesus said, what are you doing here? And, And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus. And scripture tells us when he said, I'm Jesus, the Roman soldiers fell back aggressively as if they had been punched. And I think it was just Jesus letting them all know, letting us know, letting the world know that there is nobody that's doing this to him. Don't think for a second that you guys with your swords are coming here and arresting me because I can't do anything about it, because you're stronger than me, because you're more powerful than me. With one word, I just spoke a word and knocked you all on your fannies. Listen, imagine what would happen if I spoke two words, right? Like this could get real ugly for you real quick. So let's just be clear on why this is happening here. And so it's important for us to know that it was nobody taking Jesus by force, that he went willingly. And it's not that we just sort of got lucky because we get to benefit from Jesus' unfortunate death. No one forced this on Jesus. He allowed it to happen. Why? So that we could be reconciled into right relationship with him. Jesus knew that if he goes to the cross and he endures the suffering, then mankind, you and I, could have access to the throne room of God in a way that we never could before. This is really good news. It's not donuts in the morning news. This is life-changing, eternity-altering news. This is why Jesus came to earth in John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission, this is why he came, was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty this is one of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, that the one that was yet to be fulfilled in his life. So he made sure that this prophecy that we find in Psalm 69, verse 21, was fulfilled when he says, I am thirsty. And so a jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a hyssop, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to its lips, held it up to his lips. And we look at this and we think, well, you know, just one act of kindness before he dies, one, you know, moment of mercy. They were feeling bad, and they, they put this up to his lips so he could have a little drink drink and he could quench his thirst that's not what happened at all this was one last final moment of indignity that jesus willingly invited on himself because when they dipped it into the vinegar and the sour wine and held it up to his mouth it wasn't going to quench his thirst it wasn't going to taste good it was going to taste bitter and sour and increase his thirst and so jesus knowing what they were going to do says i thirst so that they could dip it into this vile sour wine and put it to his lips and Jesus invited this to himself so that all of Scripture could be fulfilled. Man, this is good news. Man, this is good news. Verse 30 says, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's when he died. And those three words, it is finished, are really, really good news for you. It is finished is not an admission of defeat, but a declaration of victory. He said, my mission, what I came to do is done. And we could spend the rest of our life considering the implication of these three words, it is finished. It is finished in that moment, in part, meant that the physical pain that he was personally enduring on that cross on that day was over. That he had moved beyond the reach of monstrous men. It is finished means that he had fully drunk the cup of the wrath of God that was prepared for the judgment of sin. That God responds to sin with judgment. And because um, Jesus wanted to save us from that judgment, he stands in the place to endure the full judgment and the wrath of God. He says it's done. It's finished. It's been fully satisfied. It is finished means that every prophecy about Christ has now been fulfilled. It is finished means, and I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary, that the ceremonial law is abolished and a period put in the obligation of it. That Jesus says, I didn't come to change the law, I came to fulfill the law. And and this Mosaic law, the the Mosaic economy is now dissolved to make way for a better hope. This is good news. What What we don't fully understand oftentimes is that the law was given to Moses so that mankind, so that the Israelites, and so that we could know that it is impossible for us to fulfill the law. Let me say it again. The law was given for the purpose that we would know that it's impossible for us to fulfill the law. I think, well, that's messed up. God's being kind of a jerk. Why would he give us the law if we couldn't fulfill it? What he was showing is that there is no other way to be made right with God other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The law was given so that we would know that we couldn't fulfill the law. The gospel comes and Jesus comes to fulfill the law on our behalf and put a period at the end and say, it's done. It's over. It's been fully completed. It's been fully satisfied. It is finished. It is finished means sin is finished. Its power over mankind is now broken forever. It is finished means the process of man's redemption is now complete. It is finished means the divine justice of God is now fully satisfied. It is finished means that Jesus has delivered a fatal blow to the head of Satan. It's finished. It's over. It's done. It is finished means a foundation of mercy, grace, peace, happiness, acceptance, relationship with God was laid that will never break and never crack. It is finished. It is finished means a path of, of intimacy with God has been forever opened and eternal life is guaranteed. If it is finished means forgiveness of sin is fully, satisfied, is fully satisfied in the blood of Jesus, not just recognized in the blood of goats and sheep. It's finished. It's finished. There is no longer a future hope that you're looking to. The hope is here and it is finished. And we come along as believers 2,000 years later And we hear this good news and it sounds too good to be true. And though initially on hearing it, we might be a little skeptical. We want to participate. Yes. We want to get in on this. We want to get in on this deal. It sounds like a really, really good deal. So we say, what do I have to do to get in on this? What do I have to do to be a part of this? What's the catch? What's the cost? Because we know that something this good couldn't be for free. So what do I have to do? What's the catch? And so we approach Jesus with reserved hope, kind of like we open that email or see that text message with the promise of a vacation or a couple million dollars thinking, what if this is really true? But we know that there's a catch. And so we come to Jesus with a reserved hope. What do I, I don't want to get too excited because it sounds too good to be true so what do I have to do in order to have access to this what what's my part what's the real cost that is going to cost me and it's Jesus on the cross is saying nothing it's finished it is finished yeah I know that it's finished but what do I have to fix about me in order to get in on this What, what do I have to change first nothing it's finished right Jesus I get it you made the way what do I have to do nothing it is finished And we think, yeah, we look at it and think, yeah, it's it's almost finished. That Jesus did 99% of the work. And as long as I act right and make good decisions and clean up my act and behave, then I'm all good. Then it's really finished. Like Jesus did most of the work, but I have to do a little bit of the work and then it's finished. And then the mission is complete. The truth is Jesus did the work and he put a period on it and said it's done. He didn't do 80% of the work. He didn't do 99% of the work. He did it all. He completed the mission. I wasn't watching the game last night, thankfully. <clears throat> Some of you were. But I, I was looking at the score and on, on an app, and there was probably about 10 minutes or so left in the game, and the, the Cornhuskers were losing really bad at the time, and there was a little piece on, on that app there that said Ohio State had a 99.9% chance of victory. 99.9% chance of victory with 10 minutes left in the game. Yeah, obviously, that's why all the fans had left. Um, but, but the truth is, they still had a job to do, yes? The, the Buckeyes, they still had to participate. They still had to be on the field. There was still something they had to do. If they all got up and just left and walked away, they would have lost, Even though they had 99.9% chance of victory. If they would have walked away, if they would have not participated, they would have lost. Even though that, that was the percentage. Now listen, Jesus didn't even leave an opportunity for you to fail by walking off the field. He did all of the work. He didn't leave just a little bit undone so that you would have to invest into your own salvation. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say, you know what? I'm going to do 99% of it, but I'm going to leave 1% undone so that these people have to invest in their own salvation. You know, it works a little bit better if they have their own skin in the game. So I'm going to do 99% of it. They just have to do 1%. And when they do that 1%, then they're in. Then they're good. Then then it's salvation. No, Jesus says it is finished. I've finished the work. The truth is, if Jesus left even 1% for you to do to earn your salvation, you would fail miserably you wouldn't have hope. That's why he did it all. And he said, it's finished. But because we're smart people and because we know that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and because we know that there, nothing is free, we begin to place a cover charge over salvation and try to monitor behavior and then we call it religion. To be accepted by God before we behave sounds too good to be true. So we make it harder than it was intended to be. Several years ago, I was in Arizona for a pastor's conference, and we were, I was with Pastor Tony, who was, who was the pastor of this church at the time. And um, we, were, we were at this course, we, we golf course, and we had some free time one afternoon, so we went golfing, and it was a really nice course there in Phoenix. And, and at this course, um, if, you're just, if there's just two of you, they pair you up with uh, another two people so that you can have a foursome and go around, and play can go faster. And so we got paired up with these two guys, and we were on the first tee, and we made our introductions and I'm Chris and Tony and, and all this stuff. And, and I come to find out before we hit even one shot that I was golfing with a guy who had just got his PGA Tour card, which means he was a golf pro. Nice, right? Felt really good about myself then. And come to find out that his partner who was with him was his coach. So he was no slouch either. Pastor Tony was way better at golf than me, and so I'm thinking, oh, great, this is going to be a long day. Super intimidating, and I I thought to myself, wow, I'm really going to have to play super good to impress these guys. So I get up, I'm I'm up there, get up to hit first on the first tee, and I'm the first one going, and I put the... T N in and I'm taking a couple practice swings. And I'm, I'm, man, I'm trying to psych myself out. Come on, Chris. Don't make a fool of yourself. Don't make a fool of yourself. Just, just hit it good. Hit it good. And, um, man, I get up there and, and I take that back swing and I hit and I hit a bomb. I'm telling you. Right down the center. <sighs> Straight away, it was beauty. Like, it was, it was a picture, of just a straight and right down the middle. It was one of those hits that was so good, I didn't even watch it land. Any golfers know what I'm talking about. Like, I hit it so good, I knew where it was going, you know, way down there. I just picked up my tee, and I turn around, and I'm ready for all the high fives and the adulation, right? I'm fully expecting to be high fived. I'm fully expecting them to be, oh, whoa, you know, somebody brought the big stick today. Here we go. You know, what did you say your name was? Where did you golf in college? all of this stuff i'm expecting right i'm expecting and i turn around and i'm ready for all my praise and adulation and pastor tony kind of giving me the thumbs up way to go because he knows you know like it's intimidating and and i look over there to the golf pros for for my pat on the back and stuff and i barely got the obligatory nice ball i wanted to say what do you mean nice ball that was a great ball that thing is still going. It's not even stopped yet. You see? It's still rolling. Nice ball. I'm going to nice ball you upside the head here. You know, And I'm just like, what are you talking about? And then a couple minutes later, the pro gets up to hit. And that was a nice ball. <laughs> Man. His ball flew 40 yards past my ball before it even landed and then rolled another, like, 50 or so. In fact, I I even saw this. I'm not making this up at all. His ball, it was was flying over my ball, looked down at it and gave it the finger guns as it was flying over. (laughs) Hey, little guy. Whoa. So it's going to be like that. The worst part was, after he hit his... Really nice ball. He looked to his coach and he said, "Ah, man, that felt off. I didn't hit it in the sweet spot. I'm thinking, nice. Here It's going to be a long, long day. And it was clear from the very first shot that my absolute best golf on my very best day couldn't come close to measuring up to this guy. That shot, the one good shot that I had all day, the very first shot, the very first tee, the one good shot that I had all day was the best I had in me and he wasn't impressed by it one bit not impressed how awfully sad for me I felt but what I realized a couple holes later and it was something odd that he wasn't disgusted at me at my worst shot either when I shanked it into the trees and it went two feet he didn't say you dummy Wow, this is such a waste of time. I'm leaving. I can't be around this. He didn't care. He didn't care that I hit one straight. He didn't care that I hit one into the trees. And you know what? I didn't have to apologize that I couldn't keep up with him. You know why? I wasn't expected to. There was no preconceived notion that I had to keep up with this pro. I wasn't going to keep up with him. I wasn't going to match him. I wasn't going to be like him. And religion tells us that we need to try to keep up with Jesus. Good luck with that. It's not going to go well for you. Religion tells us you need to hit further. You need to do better, be nicer, know more scripture, give more money, serve in the preschool ministry. Which actually, let me stop there. That is a prerequisite to heaven. (laughs) You do have to do that. So sign up out in the foyer, let us know. But what we realize is that our best effort on our best day isn't all that impressive to God. Religion demands that we find ways to impress God with our good behavior. Try it. That's why you're miserable in your relationship with God. That's why you hate Christianity. That's why you hate religion, because you're trying to be like Jesus and trying to keep up and trying to do right all the time, but you keep messing up. You're not going to keep up with him. Our attempts to impress God leave us looking like Stuart from Mad TV. There was a, somebody caught it. Thank you, Patrick. There's an old sketch comedy like Mad TV. It's kind of like Saturday Night Live, and there was a a thing that they used to do, there was this character, he was supposed to be a boy, a little boy, like a five-year-old boy, but he was like the six six man, and he had his little tiny shirt and his little tiny shorts and rosy cheeks and a ridiculous haircut, and he always had his eyes crossed for whatever reason and stuff, and, and this boy, Stuart, every time he would meet somebody new in this sketch, whether it was a coach or a teacher or a doctor or somebody else, he would always say to this person, Look what I can do. And then he'd do something like this. And so his mom introduced introducing, Stuart, this is your coach and stuff. And her mom was weird. And, uh, and Stuart would say, Hi, uh, look what I can do. <laughs> look what I can do. And the coach or the teacher would always look at him like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And his mom was always like, Stuart, come meet your coach. Come meet your coach. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. Look what I can do. And trying to impress him. I was going to find a clip, but I couldn't find any appropriate for church, and I'm sorry that I've even watched it. This is my confession. But it was funny, back a long time ago, before the blood of Jesus washed my sins away. But what we do, we do the same thing. We say, God, look what I can do. God, I can name all the books of the Bible. right? God, there was a homeless man out there and I gave him $3, right? God, I gave my tithe today. And we do all this, look what I can do, look what I can do, look what I can do. And you know what the church does? You know what religion does? Religion is like Stuart's mom and there's a bunch of new believers saying, show him what you can do. Go ahead, show him what you can do. Look, he folds his hands when he prays. Isn't that so cute? Show him what you can do. And I have this feeling that God is looking down like, man, this is embarrassing. Funny. Like, come here, look at these idiots dancing around, trying to earn their salvation, trying to earn grace, trying to earn acceptance because they read their Bible for five minutes today. Look what I can do. Look what I can do. It's as if God is going to look at us and say, you know what? It's a good thing. It's a good thing you know all the books of the Bible because, because boy, uh, Jesus didn't complete the work on the cross. And if you wouldn't have known all the books of the Bible, then it would have rendered all of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross completely ineffective. His work only goes so far. Crazy, right? That's why Jesus said, it is finished. You know, the truth is there's absolutely nothing good or amazing about the idea that I am accepted because I behave. That's not good news. That's the way culture works. That's the way our society works. That's normal human thinking. That's how you behave, you're accepted. That's, that's how it works. You act right, I like you. You act right enough, I love you. But you begin to misbehave. We're out, we're done. Think about this. You do what you're supposed to do and I'm with you I like you but you lose 56 to 14 at home you and I are done right you're not performing you're not doing what you're supposed to do and our commitment to people is based on behavior yes we understand how that works we understand that there is some rightness to it it's a give and take that's how the world works but here's the good news i want you to listen to me if you haven't heard anything listen to this god doesn't base his love for you on your behavior or your performance that's good news because here's the thing Every single one of you, me, all of us up here have had weeks where we've lost 56 to 14, yes? Where we've done things, where we've said things that are embarrassing, that are completely contradictory to what we've claimed to be, and we've gotten beat 56 to 14, and we're trying to figure out how to pick up the pieces and how to make things right and how to be right again and how to restore that relationship. I want you to know that God isn't up in heaven saying, you know what, you got one more week. You better get this one right or you're gone. God is up in heaven saying, you know what? I know you just lost 56 to 14 this week, but I want you to know I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. Your goodness, your rightness, your behavior, your, those things do not make me love you any less. That's good news, right? Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says, god showed his great love for us by sending christ to die for us while we were still sinners we can't impress god so we can stop trying you know the only thing that impresses god is god and that's why he sent his son jesus god to do the work and then god says you know what all you have to do is stand with jesus and i'm impressed we don't have to jump or skip or prove anything He's fully impressed with Jesus. He's fully satisfied in Jesus. We stand close to Jesus. That's all That's all we have to do. Now, but that's too good to be true. It's too simple. It was meant to be. It was meant to be so simple that your children understand it. Because you know what? You give your child an ice cream cone and tell them it's free, it doesn't cost anything great, I'm going to take it. They don't understand that they have to pay for anything. They don't understand that everything has a cost. So you tell your kid you get eternal life because Jesus gave it to you, they're like, sweet, I'm in. You tell an adult you get eternal life because Jesus gave it to you? No, 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 no. What's the catch? That's why Jesus says, if you want to make it to the kingdom of heaven, you want to get in, you got to be like one of these little ones. But it sounds too good to be true. Yeah, it does. Just like when you take your kid to vacation on vacation to Disney and they don't have a clue how much it costs. Too good to be true. They don't care. They just accept it. Stand your feet. I'm gonna close with this verse here. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Listen to this. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that no one can boast about it. Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done. You didn't earn anything. Jesus did it all. And so we try to do good things to be accepted. Jesus says, I've already done it. I've already accepted you. And and the truth is, there are still good things to be done. But the order is crucial. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to think on this for a second. The order of this is crucial. As believers, we strive to do good things not to be accepted, but because we already are accepted. Accepted. I want to close in prayer over you. And I just think sometimes we have to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. We have to be reminded of the joy of our salvation. We have to be reminded that He did all the work and we get to experience all the blessings. We have to be reminded how much He loves us. And sometimes we just need to and to sit back in awe of His goodness and tell Him again how much we love Him, how good He is. And then when that good news begins to take root inside our hearts and our spirit, it's good news that we can't contain. That's why we obsess about Jesus. That's why we sing about Him, talk about Him, surrender our lives to Him. hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.